You are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. All right, good evening, everybody. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. I just want to remind you, as we are in New Testament survey before I pray, uh, next week there's this little football game that's going on, right, called the Super Bowl. Some of you are excited about it. Some of you don't care. I will be here teaching this class, okay? I will not judge you if you're not here. I will love you the following week, okay? But we will be here next week, 6.15, me and three of my friends, and we will go continue going through this. But just so the questions there, we will meet next week. And, uh, and if, if you can't come for any reason, we've got it available on the website typically on Monday afterwards, but I will be here uh, with all my um, non-football watching friends. I'm just going to record it and fast forward a little bit later, okay? So let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we get tonight. Um, it's just been a, a good day, but a real heavy day. Uh, just a lot of people going through uh, stuff, and yet we see you faithful throughout it all, and we see you working and moving in lives, and we're just thankful for it. So God, um, I pray that as our church does continue to push into your knowledge of the word, uh, that we would uh, know you better. And to know you better would also mean that, God, that uh, we would come to understand um, Jesus, uh, how he lived his life and what he did for us through his life and uh, all the way to the cross and the empty tomb. And so, um, Lord, I'm asking that as we do uh, tonight, look at something that we typically only look at one time a year, that you would teach us in a very profound way, about the wonders of the incarnation, about how, Jesus, you came to us. So uh, this is your time. Speak to us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I know we just celebrated Christmas uh, in December, and I know you probably should be talking about it in February, but I just want to go ahead and make a statement right out the gate. The birth of Jesus is not something just to be celebrated one day a year, you know? The fact that God came in the flesh on a rescue mission for us should be something that we should be celebrating all year long, which means that if you want to sing the first Noel in the middle of July, you have at it, right, okay? You can do whatever you need to because this point is pretty important. So what we're doing, if you, as a reminder, if those are just joining us, we're doing a New Testament survey. I'm going to help you understand the fullness of what the New Testament does, and I'm going to give you 15 key words that if you know what these words mean, you will be able to describe the narrative of the New Testament. From Matthew to Revelation, get you a good kind of launching pad, which brings us to this first word of our 15, which is incarnation. Just basically means that someone's coming in the flesh, right? It's this incarnate, if you think about that. Something is coming in the flesh on a rescue mission. So it really starts us this way, that the Son of God came in the flesh to fulfill God's plan of salvation. The birth of Jesus was not an afterthought, but an intentional plan from the beginning. God had sent many prophets that we see recorded throughout the Old Testament. But when it came to this moment in history, he sent none other than his son to come in the flesh on a rescue mission from heaven to earth to change everything. And so I will bring this to you really quick because I want to start with some prophecy. As I mentioned a few weeks ago about how Old Testament points to the person of Christ, I want to show you a couple things specifically in the Old Testament and see how close it is aligned to what we experience in the life of Jesus. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous what? Branch, okay? So when you think of branch, what automatically comes to your mind? Anybody? There's a tree, right? So something's growing and something's going to come up out of it, right? Okay, and it's going to come for who? Right again? For David. 
And who was David? He was Israel's king. That the first king was Saul, but God says, no, I'm going to give you a king after my own what? Heart, right? So God's going to raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall do what? He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. So there's a prophecy that someone's going to come from the lineage of David, right? City of David. You remember what the city of David is? Bethlehem, right? Someone's going to come from there, and he's going to reign as king. Now, most of you would automatically start saying, wait a minute, Jesus never really reached uh, king status, right? Well, it depends on how you look at it. Um, remember what uh, Herod put on the top of the cross? What was it? King of the Jews. And they said, why don't you take that down? Why don't you say he said king of the Jews? Because I'm just going to put it up there. He's king of the Jews. In this moment, uh, there is a unique situation that he is reigning as king going forward, which is an interesting concept, by the way, because if you go to Matthew chapter 1 and all the genealogy, it starts from Abraham, gets us to Jesus, and all these different key figures throughout Jesus' lineage. And yet, um, if you think about it, that basically they're showing this line that from David all the way uh, to Jesus, there's a lineage of who is the rightful king of Israel, right? Now, what's unique about this is that in the lineage, they say that there's a man right before Jesus. That would be his adoptive father, and his name would be what? Joseph, right? And yet, if you think about the way kings work, uh, if Joseph is alive, Jesus shouldn't be the king. He should be the what? The prince, right? He should be the prince of the Jews or something like that. That's how it works in typical situations, which makes things interesting because by the time that Jesus is on the cross, what do we know about Joseph? He's not in the picture. Most likely he's dead, which means that at Jesus' coronation on the cross, he is the rightful king because his father has passed away and he is the one to step in that. He's not the prince of the Jews. He's the king of the Jews. And so something even happens between age 12 of Jesus and age 30 that Joseph has passed away and Jesus is the rightful heir to that throne. You go a little bit further in Jeremiah 23, 6, it says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord, I love this, is our righteousness. So he's, he's not only going to give righteousness, he goes, this Lord, he is righteousness, Right? So it's prophesied about someone who is to come. Let's look next at Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her what? Children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. What in the world could that be speaking of? In Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born, what type of person could ever be crying for all the children who've died? Does anybody want to take a guess? Remember what happens with, with uh, Herod going through when he hears that a king has been born? What does he do? Goes on a genocidal, like tyrant, crazy crusade to kill any baby boy. What was the age? Two years or younger. Two years or younger. So think about in that region with the Roman government coming in and taking two-year-old boys and younger all from their homes and killing them. Can you imagine there was some weeping and crying that day? Now, what was this all about? It's about a satanic attack because the devil knew that Jesus was on the loose and basically, I would say, encouraging Herod to kill every baby boy that comes from this area because we got to stop the Messiah. It was a deep uh, weeping that was happening in that time. We look forward at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
well, that's the city of David, right? Um, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be what? Ruler in Israel. By the way, Micah is written after the time of David. So David's been king, but now Micah is looking ahead to the future saying, somebody's going to be born in Bethlehem, and he's going to be ruler of Israel. Okay, well, that makes sense. David came from Israel. Maybe somebody else is going to come from Israel. And yet something is interesting about this birth because it's not a normal birth. Even though it's future speaking, what does it say? Whose coming forth is from of what? Old, ancient days. How can a baby be born from old, ancient days? That makes sense, doesn't it? Hey, when I think through babies that have been recently born in this church family, that baby was born two days ago, two months ago. It's a new baby. It didn't have origins of old. This is not your average birth. This is speaking of one who is eternal, who's going to touch down into human history as a baby, whose origins are from old, from ancient days. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the what? Virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That L there reminds us in the Hebrew language, that E-L is the name that we get El or Elohim for God. That means that God is with what? He's with us, right? So here's this picture of Isaiah saying he's looking ahead and there's going to be a son that's going to come about and that son's going to represent that his nickname's going to be that God is with us. Oh, and here's how you'll know where that son is. She'll be a virgin. Go ahead and tell you this. If you go to Greenville Memorial tonight, you're probably not going to find that story on that labor and delivery floor. Okay? Stop me like, oh, left side of the room, this is normal births. On the right side of the hallway, these are all those that came from virgin births. It only happened one time, folks. What's happening here? There is a birth that God was foreshadowing of which no man would get the credit. Cannot be born into sin like the rest of us were. Speaking of, all the way back, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it says that the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman are going to be fighting against each other. There's going to be a birth one day that's going to be at war with what the devil is doing. And this points to, this gets pretty specific about someone who is going to say that she is a virgin and yet she is pregnant, which is not typically how things work. If we are honest, what do you think Mary's reputation was like as she began to explain to her friends and family, no, 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 I haven't been loose. God did this to me. That woman threw her reputation away that day when she said yes to God's plan. And yet, prophesied hundreds of years before this time, he gives it out. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It speaks of a day where the government and peace, that there will be no end. The throne of David over his kingdom, something will be established here. Now, you and I both know that in the lifetime of Jesus, that type of kingdom was not established. And I say, well, in the ways that we typically interpret it, yeah, you're right. Because typically, if you think about the state of South Carolina, and this is that state or whatever that is, okay? If that's South Carolina, uh, there would be a jurisdiction. There's lines around it. There's kind of leadership around it that kind of goes, right? And you could say this person rules over that, but the type of rule that Jesus had, it was not just somehow separated by geographical lines, but everywhere a child of God went, the kingdom of God went with them. Speaking also of a coming day where there will be a kingdom that will be actual uh, for us to experience. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, Thou shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Anybody know who Jesse is? 
yeah, uh, father of David. He's going to come forth to shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. A branch from his what? Roots. That's an interesting thing. How oftentimes the branches come out of roots, right? That just said, why, why would you even say that? Because it's not just something on the top that's coming out like this is this is from the beginning. This is coming from the beginning. At the very source of this, this is God's plan all on the way. It's coming from Jesse, coming through David, gonna be this lineage, and there's coming forth a shoot from a stump. The branch is gonna come from the roots and it's gonna bear fruit. We get to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What does this mean? You do realize that when Herod was on um, that genocidal uh, tirade, that Joseph and Mary got up and took, Joseph, uh, took Jesus to where? Took him to Egypt. He did what the book of people in Exodus did. He went and lived in Egypt for a while and then got out, got out of Exodus out of Egypt. So even in this, Hosea happens after Exodus, so this is obviously not talking about those people. Talking about someone else. Psalm chapter 72, verses 9 through 10. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. What in the world? Keep going forward. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him what? Tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Sea bring what? So this is a prophecy about some kind of thing in the middle of a psalm saying, one day there's going to be kings from afar that are going to come down and bring gifts to him. Uh, I think there's a song that goes something like that, right? Um, you, you, you learn it, maybe you know where to go in the Bible, but we three kings of Orient are, right? We're bringing our gifts from afar. There's this picture of people from outside our ethnicity, outside of our religion. They're going to come from different places, the coastlands, and they're going to bring him tribute. These kings are actually going to come and bring him gifts. Lay down these gifts before him. Go forward. Uh, we know this, that the Messiah would come from David. Uh, we, we do know this from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom, what? Forever. All right. Did David the king reign over Israel forever? No. Pick your favorite president in the United States of America. Will he reign forever? No. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There is only one ruler who will reign forever. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has no term limit and nobody will outvote him or impeach him or get him out of office. He will reign forever. And so this person speaking of a problem, God says to David, Someone's going to come from your family and going to rule. He's like, that's right, my son Solomon, right? Yeah, but this one I'm talking about is going to rule forever. Not four years, not 40 years. We're talking forever. And that's what he spoke of, that one day it's going to come of this. We also know the Messiah would come from Jacob. The Messiah would come from the Old Testament character of Jacob. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star. star is going to come out of Jacob. You remember at Bethlehem, what did the, what did the um, wise men see? They, they followed the, follow the star, right? Okay, that's where it's at. They keep tracking, they keep tracking to it, or over where Jesus is. It says the Messiah would come from Jacob. I'm trying to show you that the possibility of uh, Anybody claiming to have the rights to all of these prophecies is very, very low here, folks. This is miraculous that it happens. So he's coming from the line of David. He's coming from the line of Jacob. It says here also the Messiah would come from Judah. 
all the way in Judah, all the way back in Genesis chapter 49, Jacob, who is Judah's father, sits down on his deathbed and begins to pronounce blessings and curses upon his boys. Line up, son. Reuben, let me tell you what I think about you. Levi, let me tell you what I think about you. Ephraim, let me tell you what I think about you. And he just starts going down the list. And out of all of this, um, just so you know, Reuben was the firstborn. So if Jacob is going to say, there's going to be somebody who's going to rule, you would think it'd be Reuben, right? Back in those days, it's got to be the oldest. Does anybody know uh, Judah here that he's going to mention? You know, out of 12 sons, what number he is? He's four. You know what the fourth son gets typically in inheritance? Nothing. Okay, right? The 12th is the baby, right? The first is the leader that gets the rights. What's number four get? Nothing. They're just kind of in the line. Like, oh, it's fourth. We're kind of used to this by now. And yet, it says the scepter. Jacob on his deathbed looks at 12 boys and says, the scepter, what the king holds, shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Folks, that's kind of specific, right? This is speaking of, out of 12 sons, um, there's going to be somebody to come from one tribe of these, one son, one tribe, and this one's going to, well, not only tribute come to him, but all peoples will bow to him one day. Not just our people, all peoples. And it comes from the line of Judah. Spoiler alert. Matthew chapter 1, Jesus' genealogy, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and guess what? Judah. It's the next one. We know him as the line of Judah. But we also know that Messiah would also come from Isaac. Genesis chapter 17, verse 19, God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You remember this situation where Abraham had tried to help God out? No, 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 you're not going to go to Hagar and have a child. That's not where the promise is coming. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Somebody's coming from Isaac's line, not Ishmael's line, that I'm going to have an everlasting covenant for him to rule, for him to reign. Keep going forth. Messiah would come from Isaac, Genesis 12, 3 and 22, 18. And you, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This child is going to come from Isaac and is going to change the world. This is the picture of what's happening here. We also know, as I mentioned earlier, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the who? Woman, not the man, not Adam. He's going after Eve. And between your offspring and her offspring, which doesn't really make sense. It says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bru uh, bruise his what? Heel. So in this moment, when a moment where the Messiah would be struck in the heel on the cross is also the death blow where he steps upon his head. And that's what's taking place even in these early days. Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy proves all those people were in the family of Jesus. When we look throughout this situation and look forward and go to Matthew chapter 1, in fact, I would love for you to turn there if you can, um, we find the genealogy proves all those people were in the family of Jesus. We see Abraham, we see Isaac, we see Jacob, we see Judah, we see David. We see all of these people that have been lined up through Old Testament prophecies saying that the Messiah must come through them and Jesus hits every single one. You see there in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zorah by Tamar. Now let me just pause there for a second. Did you feel the, the shift that happened? Man, 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 man. Why would you mention a woman? Uh, it keeps going down. Man, 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 man. Verse 5, Solomon fathered Boaz by who? 
Rahab. Does you remember what Rahab's job was before she was a, supposedly a homemaker? She's a harlot, prostitute, whatever you want to call it. Why they're not listing other women? Why they listen her? Oh, it goes down. Boaz fathered Obed by who? Ruth. Ruth's got a book by her. Oh, she's a really a good woman, right? She is, but her story's interesting. It's it's different, right? Um, then you go down to verse six. Jesse fathered King David, and David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like what you typically introduce your family as, right? Oh, this is my son, uh, actually given to me by so-and-so's wife. This is, I'm going to go ahead and just spoil you here. Um, so far, we have mentioned one, two, three, four women's names, or at least some kind of uh, designation to them. We don't mention all the women. We only mention the women that have a checkered past. Why would Matthew write that in there? Because he's trying to remind every single person in here, no matter how your family line is, God can bring good out of it. It reminds us that God's not trying to hide the busted up parts of the narrative of Scripture. He's putting it all out on display and saying, yep, through sin, through dysfunction, through drama, my Messiah came and he came to this family and there's hope for yours as well. Goes through, he goes to all these different kings, all these different people have gone through. You see in verse 12, it talks about after the exile to Babylon. We get to verse 16, it says, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of who? Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. You notice that that one line in verse 16 sounds very different than every other one because it's man begot, man begot, man begot, man begot, man begot, and this one was born of Mary. Because Joseph's not getting credit for it. This birth is different. Five women in this genealogy. Four of them with a checkered past. The fifth one, her reputation was tarnished by the way that she said that she was impregnated. And yet, God used these ladies. God used these men. God used this genealogy and all the prophecies in the Old Testament you find here in Matthew chapter 1. Now, the progression of how this thing works out, let me give you a big picture real quick, because why is it even necessary for Jesus to come into flesh? When God's people disobeyed God's rule, they were forbidden to remain in God's presence. To go all the way back, just as a reminder, God's people disobeyed God's rule. Don't eat of the tree that I've commanded you not to eat from. They were forbidden to remain in God's presence. They were kicked out of the garden of what? Kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They're outside of God's presence now because of their sin. They decided to take matters into their own hands, do their own thing, and so now they are actually kicked out. When it happens is because we disobeyed the rules, we are kicked out. But Jesus came to obey God's rule to welcome us back into God's presence. Jesus came to do what we could not do. We sinned and got kicked out. Jesus comes into our dysfunction as completely obedient to welcome us back in. It's this wonderful progression of what's supposed to take place happen. Um, Friday night, I got to preach at Converge Conference, which is something that South Carolina Baptists put on for all their BCMs and all the college campuses. Uh, down at Myrtle Beach, there was uh, uh, over 1,000 college students there. And I left yesterday afternoon, uh, came back here, because uh, I, I couldn't miss you folks. Uh, anyway, um, and so I, I wanted to be here, and um, somebody texted me a picture last night. says, are you still here? I said, no, I, I left early. And they said, you, I wish you could hear this testimony. And there was this young lady who got up on testimony. She goes to um, um, Coastal Carolina, which if you know anything about Coastal Carolina University, it is a pretty big party school. It, it is for a lot of people there. And, um, and yet they've got a really good thriving BCM. There's some really good, strong college students there. Well, they had invited somebody there last year to come. And this girl stands up. She said, when I came to this conference last year, she said, I didn't know Jesus. But as a result of last year and hearing the gospel proclaim, uh, I trusted in Jesus Christ. And since then, I've led my sister to Christ. 
And also since then, my dad's about this close to coming to know Jesus. And I'm asking all of you to pray for me. And my life has changed. And I got people that are coming. And they're basically, this is a picture, right? She felt so on the outskirts, so away from God, so kind of distant from God. And yet, someone invited her in. And she gets compelled by the love of Jesus. And now, guess what she wants to do? Let me tell you about it. And let me tell you about it. Like, he's welcoming back in, right? This is the picture that God's not standing off of heaven going, y'all going to have to figure this out how to get here. He's like, no, I'm coming. I'm coming. And so what happens is if we got kicked out of the garden, if we got kicked out of God's presence due to sin, Jesus comes back into our sin to welcome us back. Then where we're going is heaven is when all of God's people live under God's rule in God's presence. That's the end game, right? That's where we're going. Or one day it'll be better than Eden. It will be heaven. We will be able to be with the Lord in his presence at all times. And at that time, we won't have to worry about people not living in God's presence and, and not wanting to live under God's rule. We will not only obey, we'll want to obey. Our, our will will change. We'll be where we need to be. We'll finally understand what happens. But the things that cause us to miss it right now is that sin is the attempt to elevate oneself above the authority of God. So whenever we sin, we're elevating ourselves above the authority of God. We're trying to take matters into our own hand, do things under our own way. And the only way that we can be saved is we can't fix ourselves. We can't do enough righteous deeds. In fact, redemption is the path of God humbling himself to become one of us. Not us trying to reach him on our own efforts, but God reaching us through him humbling himself. So with this, the whole path of the narrative uh, is, is rather remarkable if you think about it. Like, here's a question for us to ask tonight. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why was he born in Bethlehem? Out of all the places in the world, at all the times in the world, why Bethlehem? Why then? Why, why did it happen in that type of way? Well, you do realize that Jesus, while he was born in Bethlehem, was that his hometown? No. In fact, Joseph and Mary were just visiting. Why were they visiting? They had to go back and pay taxes. Doesn't they just sound like a way to bring a child into the world, okay? Now, now follow this. Get this, because the prophecy is Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem, but Joseph and Mary and Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary live in a different city, and Jesus should have been born over there in Nazareth, and yet he's born in Bethlehem. Why? Because Caesar Augustus demanded a census to show the world how great he was. Caesar Augustus, Roman emperor, Demanded a census to show the world how great he was. What's a census? I want you to count how many people answer to me. Keep going. Keep going. Everybody go to your hometown. This is what I want you to do. You go to your hometown. You go to your hometown. Bethlehem's going to report. Uh, Jerusalem's going to report. And I want everybody to see how many people are in my kingdom so I can show myself to this world how great I am. It is that reason and that reason alone that Joseph gets a letter in the mail saying, you mean I've got to go back to Bethlehem? I haven't been back to Bethlehem in a long time, man. That's mama's family back there. Why in the world? You got to go back. That's where your people are from. Oh, I can't. Why? My, my, my engaged-to-be wife here, right? My, my soon-to-be wife, she's pregnant. And at any point, she could have this baby. And you know what the Roman Empire said about that? We don't care. Go to Bethlehem. Now, what's happening in this prodigal man trying to get all this kind of stuff and trying to let everybody recognize? Let's think a little bit deeper. 
This great emperor was merely a pawn in the hand of God to get Joseph and Mary to the city of Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. A year before, it doesn't work. A year after, it doesn't work. Even if he had not wanted to keep the census, he could have done the census and not said go to the hometown. But Augustus said this, no, no, no. You're going to go back to your hometown at this time so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem at that time. I say this to say, folks, it wasn't an accident. Oh, the emperor's doing this. Oh, yeah, God's making the emperor do this. Get him over to Bethlehem at this time when she's pregnant, when she's about to give birth. See, what's crazy about it is that Caesar wanted to show how great he was by elevating himself above the people. Yet God showed how great he was by becoming one of the people. In this moment, it's a beautiful thing happening. Caesar going, let all the world see how incredible I am. And the Son of God saying, let all the world see how humble I can become. The, the, the shift is remarkable, right? This is, in the scripture, when oftentimes it says, uh, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted, right? He's saying this. Augustus wants to say, look how important I am. And Jesus goes, let's see how low I can go. Not only, by the way, you, you're thinking, born in the manger. I get that. Let's even take it another step further. Leaving heaven and coming to earth, right? Like, that in itself, my friend, that, that's, a, that's a significant jump. Uh, leaving the presence of God, divinity, coming, coming down as a baby, dependent upon a, most likely a teenage girl to carry you on her hip to get around. He is humbling himself. Jesus showed humility by emptying himself to become a human, born in a small town, delivered in a manger, and announced to people on the fringes. Jesus is doing the complete opposite of what Caesar Augustus is doing. He is humbling himself by emptying himself, becoming a human. Unthinkable, right? But not only this, born in a small town. Well, why not he born in a more significant town? He's born in a small town. And he's delivered in a manger, which um, probably the worst birth story I've ever heard is a friend of mine was born in the floorboard of her dad's Cadillac. Because mama said, it's time for me to go to the hospital. And he goes, I don't think you're ready. And they argued for hours. And eventually he started to take her to the hospital. And she said, pull over. I had run out of time. And that baby was delivered in the floorboard of the Cadillac on the side of Highway 25. I don't know what your story is like, but that was pretty bad. Okay, that was pretty bad. But I'll say this, that even beyond that, to be born in a situation where the only safe place they could find, they cannot find room in a simple inn, this baby is put into a cradle that animals fed from. And yet, God's writing this story, isn't he? So if God's writing the story and it's setting up, couldn't there be something where God could turn the head of this person to open up their home so that Jesus could be born in the nicest of medical situations or the most luxurious of home setting? That's not where Jesus wanted to be born. Because I don't know about your situation, but I've never met anybody else's first cradle was where animals fed from. And that's where Jesus goes, from heaven all the way to this spot, showing his humility, and then announced to people on the fringes. Who were the first people who got the announcement of Jesus' birth? Shepherds, right? And that, that job was so lowly that people were on the outskirts of town to experience that. The perception we see here in, in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, 
And in Luke chapter 1 and 2, let me just um, reveal a couple of things to you. I want you to look at this. Matthew 1, you see the genealogy there. Then you see verse 18, it says the nativity, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way after his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph. It was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her from the Holy Spirit, she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, what I want you to notice here is, and then basically, he does exactly what happens, and then look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, what? Where'd the birth story go? Where are the shepherds at? Where's the inn? Not in Matthew. It's in, guess what? Luke. Mark has nothing about uh, his birth. John has nothing about his birth. But let me show you something this will help. Remember when I told you last week that Matthew was trying to um, uh, speak to a certain group of people? Who was it? Remember? The Jews, right? That's who he's speaking to. Luke was trying to speak to a certain group of people. It was the Gentiles. And really what's interesting is Matthew centers the birth narrative on Joseph. And Luke centers the birth narrative, guess on who? Mary. So what happens here is, I think this can be accurate, Joseph, in the lineage of Abraham, in the lineage of King David, the rightful heir, Matthew focuses the narrative on that what Joseph hears from the angel and what Joseph did right and how Joseph is experiencing stuff and how the nations you see in chapter 2, the wise men come and visit him. That's all in Matthew. When you get to Luke, it's more Mary's perspective, which most likely makes us think that Luke actually interviewed Mary in her later years in life. So Matthew is really focusing in on Joseph. Luke's really focusing on Mary. You see there in um, Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, wise men came from the east, right? Now, let me follow along a little bit. They're saying, hey, we, we found this prophecy. We've been following this star. Herod's kind of uh, a little bit frustrated with this, right? And he wants to know what happened. And here's what's interesting about this. It says that when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes and the people and asked where the Messiah would be born. And they said, where? Bethlehem. It's pretty simple here, right? Now, with this, what, what takes place is they're, they're looking and trying to find out what, where it is. If you go down to verse 16, when the wise men flee from uh, this place and Joseph and Mary leave for Egypt, says, then Herod, when he realized he'd been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were what? Two years old and under, which is a really important clue for you to lock onto a little bit because most likely the wise men are coming at a different point than where we typically find them. So here's, here's what we, I wanted to uh, at least show you here in a little bit. Um, here's some common misperceptions when it comes to things uh, in, in Jesus' narrative. Um, first off, Jesus was probably not born on December 25th, okay? And you're like, what? What are we going to do? We still celebrate it, okay? Um, Jesus was probably not born on December 25th. Here's the reason why we know this. In Luke, it says that the shepherds were keeping their flocks by night. You don't keep your flocks by night during the winter time. It's typically you do that during the summertime. So most likely, it was not December 25th. Well, why do we celebrate on December 25th? Well, 
There was a Roman holiday back in those days that was celebrated on December 25th, and the Christians decided to let's just redeem that holiday for the real uh, answer for why we should be celebrating, and we're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday on that day. That's most likely why we celebrate it on December 25th. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing, but most likely uh, that's not the birth uh, day exactly. Um, it's very doubtful, by the way, that snow was probably falling at Jesus' birth. Because once again, it's not December and it is Bethlehem. Okay, so not a whole lot of snow that goes on uh, in that region all the time. Um, but we are fascinated with it at Christmas time, aren't we? Right? It's just like, you know, you just want it to feel like Christmas. And so you want it to snow. And if that's the case, you got to move from South Carolina, folks. I don't want to let you know this. You will be let down. Okay, it rarely happened. Probably some of you have lived many decades. It might have happened a handful of times in your life. It just does it, but we are fascinated with the snow, uh, but it's doubtful that snow was falling at Jesus' birth. Uh, also notice Jesus was born in a manger, but that doesn't necessarily mean a barn. Um, a manger is more the feeding trough, really, than a barn. Um, most There's a lot of people that back in those days would actually keep their animals in something like a cave. It's more like a cave. That's where the animals would go. You could kind of block them in kind of man-made structure that you could do this. And so they'd set up the manger, and that would be where the, uh, whether it's you know, cows or sheep or pigs or whatever, eat their stuff. That's where Jesus was laid. And manger means that, but it doesn't necessarily mean a barn. I'd also say this, wise men were not present at the birth. Without a doubt, they were not there. I love your nativity set. I love my nativity set. But those three wise men were not there when baby Jesus was being born. I just read to you Matthew chapter 2 that Herod decided to kill all boys from age what? Two and younger. Herod said to the wise men, so can you tell me exactly when that star showed up? Uh, we've been traveling for this many months. We saw it there, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we've been trying to get here for about two years. And so he starts tracking backwards and thinking, so that baby was born two years ago. And so he slaughters every baby boy two years and younger. Most likely, it does make more sense here, especially um, when it says, uh, if you go down Matthew chapter 2 again, um, verse 11, entering the house, they saw the what? Child, they don't say baby. The child means kind of a, a, a young boy at that point. And so, most likely, Jesus is age 2, which always makes me laugh because I think about all this gold, frankincense, and myrrh coming in the house, and they're like, Jesus, don't you know, remember the two year old boys in your house, right? Just want to touch everything and run around. Most likely, Jesus is like this, and yet they were overwhelmed by it. We also we don't know how many wise men there were. We think how many? Three. Why do we think three? Three gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's why we think there are three gifts, uh, verse 11 says. Uh, but we don't know how many there are. There are some people, if you think about it, um, when it says verse 3, King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Some people think there could have been as many as a hundred of these guys traveling if the whole city notices what's going on here. And they brought three gifts, and they all show up at the house, but it could be as little as two, because it's plural. It could be as many as who knows how many, but they brought three gifts. And so your nativity set next year, you just bring them in about two years later and just have a whole slew of them. Okay? Just like all these guys coming in and bringing in. But correct perceptions that we do think through of Matthew and Luke's, uh, what they tell us is, uh, we know this, no man could get the credit for Jesus' birth. This is a prophecy that's given to us in the Old Testament. 
This is the reality that we see in the narrative around Mary and Joseph. That Joseph and Mary had not been intimate. This baby was born through something that only God could do. We also know this. Throughout the narrative of Scripture, we could not make it to God. So God came to us. This is the point of the beauty of the gospel. If you even think about all the way back to the Tower of Babel as God's people are trying to build this tower to get to God and God stops it and he sends them out, right? And the next thing that he does is he goes, he basically comes down to one of those people and he reaches Abraham. It's not going to be a man's efforts to reach God. It's going to be God's efforts to reach us. And that's what's flipped at the incarnation. Know this, this is an important theological statement for you to understand, but Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, right? Fully God and fully man. He is not 50% God and 50% man. He is fully God and fully man. Why is that important? Because he is not just a really good guy who graduated to some kind of godhood status. It's not that he does not, he's lacking certain godly qualities. No, he is fully God and fully man. There's all these deep theological terms and discussions that happens on this. But you need to understand this because you don't want to say, well, Jesus was just this that turned to that. No, he, it's hard for us to comprehend, but he is fully God. He has the abilities that God has, but he's also fully man, which means he knows what it's like to be tempted, yet he never sinned. So this union is, is an amazing thing. Jesus came on a mission to reverse Eden's curse. We know that. Well, it started off in Eden. Jesus comes back on the day and, and Bethlehem reroutes everything that took place, came on a mission to reverse Eden's curse, knew that we could not reach him, so he came to us in the most humbling of situations, an unlikely rescue mission. Jesus is proof that God desires to dwell with us. Isn't it amazing that Jesus wanted to be with um, folks, I don't know if you have ever had somebody that you looked up to in your life and when they come in and they want to be around you and how just incredibly encouraged you are, here's what I want you to picture for a moment, that God in heaven saw us in our sin and dysfunction and he still came down to look for us. I don't know what your uh, thoughts are or on intelligent life out there, right? People always talk about their beliefs in aliens or intelligent life. There's this line I heard from somebody say years ago, the only proof that I have an intelligent life on another planet is that they haven't tried to contact us yet, okay? I think what that person is trying to say is, if you look at this world, we are in kind of a bad shape, right? Would you agree with that? Kind of rough. We, we don't treat each other well. Uh, we have not really got all of our stuff together. And yet, um, if someone could see from outside and think, do I want to come into the middle of this? The answer probably be like, no, I don't want to get into that. And Jesus saw everything, saw it clearly, right? And he decides, I don't want to fix it from afar. I want to get in the middle of it. Why don't you put me in the humblest of birth situations? So if anybody thinks, well, you can't relate to me, Jesus, because you don't know where I'm born. He goes, you're born in a manger? No, nah, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that. Well, yeah, but you know what? Like, I was actually born, and I even born in my hometown. Oh, we were actually having to go there because the Roman government put me and my dear mama at this different place at this time. And what? I, well, yeah, but Jesus, you don't understand. You know how messed up my family line is. I got all these people, and, and you know my great 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 father. He did some crazy stuff, and I don't even know who. You know, and he goes, "Oh, you think your family's bad? Look what God did through mine." I mean, every step of the way, Jesus Christ identifies with the people. Their people are washing their sins in the Jordan River and he plunges himself underneath it. 
The leper who says, will you cleanse me? Jesus embraces him first and says, I sure will. The young girl who is dead, and if you touch the corpse, you are unclean. Jesus touches her and says, little girl, get up. He goes in in every situation and not only identifies with our weakness, he embraces it. This is the, the difference. Religion will tell you that you have to make yourself good enough to engage God and to reach heaven. And the gospel says, good luck, you can. So Jesus came for us. So tonight, the whole New Testament hinges on this point. Do you believe that God sent his son, Jesus, to come for us? And not only that, but to come up in the middle of it, to live among some folks, to, to be born in a humble situation, but to be our rescue out. And so before we get to his ministry, before we get to his teaching, before we get to his death and resurrection, we got to stay here. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus for coming to earth and that's something to celebrate more than one day a year amen so father we thank you for sending jesus thank you for sending him as our rescue thank you for all the prophecies that led to his birth thank you that as we celebrate at christmas time every year that we are reminded of of the faithfulness of our god that would dwell among us but lord that is a belief and something to hold to every single day of our lives you saw us in our sin in our dysfunction and you still came on a rescue mission for us. So, Lord, we don't have to work our way into good graces with you. You have come for us. And now we get to embrace you every single day. Thank you for your intentionality, for your grace, for your kindness to us. Thank you for being here. In the name of Jesus, we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.